today, thanks to um, Aya Chitananda's encouragement, I'm going to talk about Nibbana. And I'm going to share my notes with you because it might, I'm going to read um, and talk about a, a, a few different, quite a few actually, passages from the Nikayas, and I want you to be able to see them. So, here we go. So I think first we can look at a, a couple of the um, a couple of quotes from the Nikayas to just kind of like uh, solidify our agreed or shared sense of what Nibbana is and how the Buddha talked about it. So I'm just going to read this uh, this first one. I think you can see it on the screen. It's from the Sangyutta Nikaya, 43, 1 to 44. And this, these quotes I um, pulled out of the island by Ajahn Pasano and Ajahn Amaro. And you can download that book from the Abhayagiri website if you haven't seen it before. But it's, it's entirely focused on Nibbana, the point of the book. And they've pulled, they've collected a number of really excellent quotes from the suttas to um, to discuss this topic. And from those, I like the translations that they picked for the most part. So I just uh, pulled them from there to put into my notes. And this first one is the many ways the Buddha uh, described or the synonyms that he had for Nibbana to give us a sense of what it is or what it is not. And it says, cessation of greed, of hatred, and of delusion is the unformed, the unconditioned, the end, the taintless, the truth, the other shore, the subtle, the very hard to see, the unweakening, the everlasting, the undisintegrating, the invisible, the undiversified peace, the deathless, the supreme goal, the blessed safety, exhaustion of craving, the wonderful, the marvelous, non-distress, the naturally non-distressed, Nibbana, non-affliction, fading of lust, purity, freedom, independence of reliance, the island, the shelter, the harbor, the refuge, the beyond. So a few synonyms. And then there in the Udana, uh, section eight, there are four I think this should be eight one. Um, there are four little suttas that um, give different descriptions, and we're going to look at the first or add three of them here. So there is that sphere where there is no earth, no water, no fire, nor wind, 
no sphere of infinity of space, of infinity of consciousness, of nothingness, or even of neither perception nor non-perception. There. There is neither this world nor the other world, neither moon nor sun. This sphere I call neither a coming nor a going nor a staying still, neither a dying nor a reappearance. It has no basis, no evolution, and no support. This, just this, is the end of dukkha. So that's Udana 8.1. And then this one from Udana 8.3, it's also the Itiwataka uh, number 43, is one that you've probably heard many times. This is a favorite um, for many, many people because it's so profound. Gives us a real sense. Yes, I'm editing my <laughs> my notes. Make it a little more readable. There is the unborn, the uncreated, unconditioned, and unformed. If there were not, there would be no escape discerned from that which is a, which is born, created, conditioned, and formed. But since there is the unborn, uncreated, unconditioned, and unformed. Escape is therefore discerned from that which is born, created, conditioned, and formed. And of course, you know, the, the distinction here is you have all, all everything, <laughs> sankara, everything that is based on conditions. So that's our bodies, our perceptions, our feelings, our thoughts, all mental activity, our consciousness, whatever we think of as me or mine, it all is in that bucket of conditioned things that do not last, that are born and die. They're created and formed. When those conditions end, they end. But then there's the unconditioned, the unborn, Nibbana. And then this this last one that I picked for uh, thinking about what Nibbana is or is not is is also from the Udana. It's the fourth in that series. One who is dependent on wavering. One who is independent has no wavering. Okay, one who is dependent has wavering, and one who is independent has no wavering. There being no wavering, there is calm. There being calm, there's no desire or inclination. There being no desire or inclination, there's no coming or going. There being no coming or going, there's no passing away or arising. There being no passing away or arising, there's neither a here nor a there nor a between the two. This, just this, is the end of dukkha. Okay, so let's let's go on. So now I want to turn to like what is it that we can do to put in the causes and conditions to realize nibbana. And we have this lovely sutta where the venerable Ananda goes to see venerable Sariputta. Got to rearrange. I keep wanting to see you and I don't want to look at the note but I better start um, <clears throat> so the venerable Ananda went to visit the venerable Sariputta and on coming 
to him, greeted him courteously. As he sat down at one side, the venerable Ananda asked the venerable Sariputta, what is the reason, what is the cause why certain beings in this world are not fully set free in this very life? So what is the reason why some of us don't realize Nibbana here and now? And Venerable Sariputta says, in this matter, friend Ananda, beings do not understand as it really is. This perception is conducive to decline or to making things worse, you might translate. They do not understand as it really is. This perception is conducive to stability, keeping things the same, keeping things stable. They do not understand this perception is conducive to distinction. So what's distinction? It's often talked about as, you know, some attainment like psychic powers or superhuman powers or some like making progress on the path that you can really identify stream entry or once returning, something like that, some distinction. Or they do not really understand this perception is conducive to, I'm not so sure I like penetration, but it's breaking through to to realize Nibbana, the realization of Nibbana. This is the reason, this is the cause why some beings in this world are not fully set free in this very life. So I think it's valuable to look at what are the perceptions that we each have that are conducive to get things getting worse, staying the same or not progressing in development to you know, again, it sounds so goal-oriented, and in a way it is, but how does it, how does it work that we don't wake up? What are we, how has our perception got us held in a way such that we don't wake up? And I think it's really, it's really good to reflect on this. And um, one way to begin reflecting on it, um, I think we have a clue in something that Andy shared uh, with um, Aya Chitananda and me last night. I, it's something I, I think is um, quite helpful. So what she told us was that in one of her classes where she's studying at the university and um, in a program that includes uh, right now at least a lot of like um, considering climate change. And she said that the, the professor talked about five habits that particularly the middle class has that really contributes to climate change. And now if we change these five habits, we can really make a difference. And so she shared with us what those five habits are and here they come on the screen. Individual habits focused on the middle class that impact climate change. Number one, plane travel. Number two, car usage. Number three, meat consumption. Number four, the living space per capita. So we have these big houses for two people or whatever. Five, energy used with, uh, by our home appliances. And so the point is that these are things we actually can make decisions about and they make a big difference. So Andy had um, an idea related to this relative to her own practice. 
and I'm not going to share what her uh, results are from the reflection. If she wants to, she can. But for each of us, like, what are the habits that we have? Like those perceptions that Venerable Sariputta is talking about. What are our habits that are really contributing to our being stuck in samsara? What are the five top? You know, we could do something like, oh, well, it's the five hindrances. <laughs> but that doesn't really quite dig at what it is for us individually. What are the five habits, the top five that you have, that I have, that, that hold us? The perceptions, maybe a perception that says, count upon us so far away. I've got so many defilements. I'm never going to be able to, you know, do that. Or perceptions that say, I'm such a bad person. I did all these things wrong. It's impossible for me. You know, those kinds of perceptions, I think, fall into the first category. The ones that really lead to decline. We think maybe we're keeping stable, but actually when we're negative about ourselves, when we're negative about Nibbana, we're, we're in decline. Habits of breaking the precepts, the five precepts, you know, sometimes people really want to establish that it's okay to drink alcohol as long as you don't get drunk. Really? Have you really, really tried that? Have you really noticed what happens to your mindfulness? What happens to you? I mean, why do people drink alcohol? A lot of the time it's because we don't want to be mindful. We want to, we want to, we want to let our guard down. We want to relax. We got to find better ways. So anyway, without trying to go off on too much of the tangents of where this could lead to really for each of us consider, you know, what, what is it that I could change? What habits can I develop that are going to put me on the track for distinctions, on the track for Nibbana, realizing instead of going backwards, instead of keeping stable, so here's a here are some clues. I have no idea what time it is. Oh, we've got time. Good. Here are some clues. And then I want to open this up for more discussion. So we have here a sutta from the Anguttara Nikaya, Book of Threes, number 55, where the Brahmin Janus Soni, who shows up a lot, he's very prominent Brahmin at the time of the Buddha, and he comes to talk to the Buddha. Um, and he says, Master Gotama, Nibbana is directly visible. That's what people say. It is said, Nibbana is directly visible. In what way is Nibbana directly visible, immediate, inviting one to come see? worthy of application to be personally experienced by the wise. Now, you notice what's interesting here is that in our chanting, that's how Dhamma is described. So the Dhamma is directly visible, immediate, inviting one to come and see worthy of application to be experienced directly by the wise. And, it's, and it holds. 
you know, like when Ajahn Sumedho has been talking about Nibbana and saying you you can just use the word Dhamma, he says you use that in, in different contexts. So it's interesting. Like, yes, this is, we're on the right track when we're trying to like really investigate Dhamma. So when a person is impassioned with lust, depraved through hatred, bewildered through delusion, overwhelmed and infatuated by delusion, then he plans for his own harm, for the harm of others, for the harm of both. And he experiences in his mind suffering and grief. But when lust, hatred, and delusion have been abandoned, he neither plans for his own harm, nor for the harm of others, nor for the harm of both. And he does not experience in his mind suffering and grief. In this way, is Nibbana directly visible, immediate, inviting one to come and see, worthy of application to be personally experienced by the wise? It's this much. And Ajahn Ghana will talk about the same thing. He says, if we are, of course, keeping precepts, so the virtue is there, doing practice of all of the Noble Eightfold Path, keeping mindfulness and wisdom consistent in the mind, and being happy and at ease. This is Nibbana here and now. It becomes a habit. And I, and I know that there's like the realization, like what, you know, I was just talking about that Ajahn Mahabua described for himself when that happened. But then we'll have, we'll have, we'll see what the Buddha says here. This part is from the Majjhima Nikaya 70, 13, 22, and 23. So this is this is a sutta where the Ajahn Pasano and Ajahn Amaro have kind of made some ellipses and pulled some pieces together from this one sutta for this quote. I say of such bhikkhus who are in higher training. So we can, I want to make this passage a little less um, male-centric and a little less monastic-centric. Well, you could say mendicants, but you know, any of us in the higher training whose minds have not yet reached the goal and who are still aspiring to the supreme security from bondage, that they still have work to do with diligence. And it's like, yes, there's, we can do this, like we can change our habits and we can put ourselves like on the track. Why is that? Because when those practitioners make use of suitable resting places and associate with good friends and balance their spiritual faculties. So this whole idea of associating with people who are also, um, you know, maybe already realized more than we have or, um, you know, really want to, you know, dig deep into the Dhamma, balancing spiritual faculties. And I think about like the five faculties, you know, where we're using mindfulness as that balance point and faith and wisdom, um, you know, and the, so the, the other uh, factors that we have them in balance. They may be realizing for themselves with direct knowledge here and now 
and enter upon and abide in that supreme goal of the holy life for which people rightly go forth from the home life into homelessness. And seeing this fruit of diligence for these mendicants, I say that they still have work to do with diligence. So if you're partway there, you still have to keep going. I do not say that final knowledge, so the realization of Nibbana, is achieved all at once. On the contrary, final knowledge is achieved by gradual training, by gradual practice, by gradual progress. And how does there come to be gradual training, gradual practice, and gradual progress? Here, one who has faith in the teacher visits them. When they visit them, they pay respect to them. When they pay respect to them, they, they listen. They really give ear. When they give ear, when they listen, they hear the Dhamma. Having heard the Dhamma, they memorize it. They examine the meaning of the teachings that they have memorized. And when they examine the meaning, they gain reflective acceptance of those teachings. So that's the point where you take it in, you go, yeah, that makes sense. I get that. But you haven't really, like, it hasn't really been a direct experience of it yet. They gain a reflective acceptance of those teachings. When they've gained a reflective acceptance of those teachings, zeal springs up. That urgency, that faith, that when zeal springs up, they apply their will. Having applied their will, they scrutinize. Having scrutinized, they strive. Resolutely striving, they realize with the body the ultimate truth and see it by penetrating by realizing by experiencing directly it with wisdom so this is fascinating i think that the buddha says you realize it with the body and i think that's very much related to how we feel pt in the body that we that when we are practicing contemplation of some point that we don't understand and it arises from what feels like somewhere else. It comes through the body. It comes through the deeper reaches of the mind. And you feel the, the validity of it in the body. And I think that's my last quote for the day. Is that exciting or what? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.